from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 6th. Today, a dramatic split-screen in American politics on full display, inside the Capitol and in Georgia. Today in Washington, D.C., an unprecedented scene unfolded inside the Capitol, interrupting what was supposed to be the last step in the presidential election process. There were increasingly violent confrontations between Trump supporters and police. A mob climbed walls and pushed past police and barricades to breach the Capitol. Once they got through, they broke doors and windows and fought with the police, who deployed tear gas inside the building. A person was shot inside the Capitol. The circumstances and the extent of their injuries were not immediately clear. All of this chaos caused an emergency adjournment of the joint session of Congress. And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Lawmakers tweeted from inside the building. They captured a terrifying scene. Uh, we were just told that there has been tear gas in the rotunda, and we're being instructed uh, to each of us get a gas mask that are under our seats. And many Democrats put blame on President Trump for provoking his supporters to attempt a coup of the federal government. This mob of protesters was there to disrupt the proceedings inside Congress, the formal tallying of the Electoral College vote. Several Senate Republicans were objecting to the election results, but their leader, Mitch McConnell, was pleading with them to confirm Joe Biden's victory. I supported the president's right to use the legal system. Dozens of lawsuits received hearings in courtrooms all across our country, but over and over. Courts rejected these claims, including all-star judges whom the president himself has nominated. McConnell went on to say that there are risks in undermining the democratic process. This election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side. Our democracy would enter a death spiral. And meanwhile, an election happened, and results were coming in. Outside Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, there was a very different scene. Democrats gathered to reflect on a historic win in the state Senate runoff election. It shook the earth to its core. I think it shook the earth because you felt a difference when you woke up this morning. When I'm starting to see the difference between Atlanta people now because this morning I've noticed that more people are communicating, more people are talking, more people are getting comfortable. But is it going to keep going? We know that Raphael Warnock, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, is going to be 
the next senator, that he defeated Senator Kelly Loeffler. Klebutin is a national political reporter for The Post. And we know that John Ossoff, the other Democrat in the race, has defeated Senator David Perdue. And and this is a pretty history-making moment in several ways. It is. Warnock becomes the first Black senator from Georgia ever, including in Reconstruction. And it's the first time in a long time that both of the seats in Georgia have been held by, by Democrats. So what is the mood among Democrats in Georgia right now, seeing how quickly this shift has happened? It's ebullient. You know, they're excited. They're energized. A lot of the data was pointing to the fact that it would be close, that Democrats would actually have a chance. And so the fact that they won not just one of the seats, but uh, two of the seats, or or possibly if this Ossoff phrase pans out, that they would have won two of the seats, uh, just makes them just overjoyed that the algorithm of, of turning out voters, the organization efforts over not just the last few months, but the last 10 years have sort of worked. But it's also, you know, kind of an open question of whether they'll be able to deliver, deliver on these big sweeping promises that Biden has made, that other Democrats have made, that even Warnock and Ossoff have made on the campaign trail. Tell me more about what we heard from Warnock in his victory speech. Thank you so very much. I come before you tonight as a proud American and as a son of Georgia. He talked about his mom and how she had picked cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. And he also talked about the work that that lay ahead. We're in a pandemic, a pandemic that's having a negative effect on the economy. People are still dying. They're still sick. And he was, you know, humbled by the moment. But also, you know, it's a daunting challenge that's ahead of him. God bless you, Georgia. Good morning. It is with humility that I thank the people of Georgia for electing me to serve you in the United States Senate. Thank you. And Asaf delivered his victory speech before he was even declared the winner officially of his race. What did you hear from him? He tried to really focus Georgians on the moment that lays ahead of them. I will work in the U.S. Senate to support a robust public health response so that we can defeat this virus. Putting Georgia's own Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the lead, trusting medical expertise. He focused on the pandemic. He focused on stimulus checks and the economy. Just, you know, this massive undertaking that both senators and Democrats and Republicans and the entire mechanism of the federal government is going to have to, you know, endure over the next couple of months to kind of get the pandemic under control. And I will look forward to serving you in the United States Senate with integrity, with humility, with honor and getting things done for the people of Georgia. Thank you so much. And what have we heard from Senators Leffler and Purdue about what they think of, of why they fell short of expectations? Very little. <laughs> uh, the last I heard of Kelly Leffler was at the Republican watch party last night when she said the results, you know, we're going to keep fighting. 
Um, and I'm going to Washington and I'm going to continue to fight for Trump. And that's where she is right now. She has said that she'd be one of the senators that objects to the what is usually a pro forma acceptance of the Electoral College results. And David Perdue, we've, we've heard even less of. He has been isolated after coming in contact with a campaign staffer who tested positive for coronavirus. So he wasn't in attendance at the party last night and he didn't even attend by Skype or anything. His cousin, Sonny Perdue, who used to be the governor here, you know, thanked everybody in, on, on, on Senator Perdue's behalf. But, you know, very little from the Republican side at this point. And what is the sense that you have of how Republican voters in Georgia are feeling right now as they see that one and likely two of these seats have now gone to Democrats? Republicans have widely said that they are the last line of defense from the country taking a lurch to the left. And so there's definitely some soul searching that's going on with the party, with the party structure, with the mechanisms for turning out different types of voters about just, you know, what went wrong and and how it went wrong and and whether or not this state is a state that is permanently blue or one that they can win win back. I'm also curious about how Democrats winning in Georgia changes the conversation in other states that are in a similar position that have been red traditionally, maybe a little bit more purple recently, and are sort of looking at the landscape and saying this shift to being more reliably Democratic is something that is feasible for us. Even before this race, before the 2020 election, you had Democrats in other states in the South and Republican-leaning areas kind of hitting up Stacey Abrams saying, how can I do what you did in 2018 in my state? How can I mobilize Black voters? How can I expand the Big Ten? How can I hit up reluctant, low-propensity voters and get them to come out you know, in the numbers that will turn a state blue? And so now you could see even more of a microscope going into Georgia. What did John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, what did independent organizers as well as ones connected to the Democratic Party do in order to turn out such large numbers of people? Cleve Woodson is a national political reporter for The Post. What do we know about why Democrats seem to have won or what made them so well positioned in this campaign? Well, when I spoke with people affiliated with the Democratic Party in Georgia this week, one of the main reasons they said they would be victorious is because the demographics of Georgia actually favor the Democratic Party. I am Eugene Scott, and I cover identity politics for The Fix. Most people think of Georgia as this conservative southern state whose politics have not changed much in the last 20 or maybe even 50 years. But that's not a reality that is reflected in the census and the culture and even in the 2020 presidential election. Georgia is far more Black and Latino and Asian and LGBTQ and millennial and woman and progressive than many people realize. And all of those voting blocks lean left. And have we seen that represented in the turnout numbers that we've seen so far? 
So far, it appears that turnout among Black voters, arguably the largest and most influential demographic group among the Democratic Party in Georgia, was close to and in some places exceeded turnout compared to the November election. I was actually speaking with people from rural Georgia today, and they spoke about the number of Black voters in rural Georgia who did not participate in the general election because they have long believed that their vote did not count Hmm. and actually decided to participate in the runoff after seeing Georgia go blue and had confidence that if they showed up, things could work in their favor. There was also a bit of a desire to be able to participate in the celebrations and the wins that they saw many of their more liberal friends enjoying after Biden and Kamala Harris won the general election, including Georgia, and wanted to have a piece of that for themselves. That's so interesting. I'm also wondering about Republican voters and if there is a sense that there were scenarios where Republicans voted for Trump in the November election, but ended up not actually voting in this one. So it does appear that in many counties, people who showed up for Trump in November did not show up this time. And that could be for a few reasons. One, it really could be that these voters are loyal to Trump and that's it. Despite the fact that the Republican candidates who were seeking the Senate were very supportive of Trump, we know that Trump enjoys high levels of favorability with Republican voters that not all Republicans enjoy. It's also possible that some Republicans who backed Trump in November have been turned off with how much fighting he has been engaged in against other Republicans, specifically those in Georgia, and his desire to have the election overturned. We have known since last week, since last Friday, that there were going to be 2,073,000 and some odd votes that were going to be cast in the advanced bucket because that was how many were cast. The president continues to say, oh, they're finding ballots. These were advanced that came out of nowhere. No, we have known that DeKalb County had 171,000 ballots since Friday evening, Saturday morning. So the statements he keeps on putting out there are incorrect and they undermine people's faith in the election process. This was also such an interesting runoff race because there were so many of these issues that were swirling around voters at one time. There was the efforts by the president to overturn the November election. There was, you know, coronavirus and the pandemic and and ongoing discussions about how to deal with that. There was the fact that Warnock in particular was this historic candidate. What is your sense of what issues were most motivating to voters? It really depends on which demographic you're talking about. I mean, Warnock and Ossoff were historic candidates, right? The first black candidate to be sent to the Senate from the state of Georgia. Ossoff is a Jewish millennial representing so much about the diversity of the state that isn't often reflected in the national coverage. Georgia has been one of the hot spots regarding the coronavirus pandemic, and many voters on both sides of the aisle were looking for a solution sooner than later, should we say. And we're hoping for relief related to the economic downturn that accompanied the pandemic. All of these issues were at the forefront of many voters' minds, including longstanding concerns about police violence against Black people, which is something that really occupied the minds of many 
in Georgia this past summer, it was a state where protests were happening all over the state and often in places that you didn't often see that type of response to these issues. And so a lot of things were on the table. But one of the main things people were voting about was whether or not they were going to send representatives to Washington who were going to continue the Trump agenda or the Trump vision for America or who were going to push back against it. I also want to talk a little bit about this Warnock-Ossoff split. I think that a lot of people have been pretty surprised to see how Warnock had this earlier victory over Leffler, but Ossoff and Purdue were much closer and that, that they aren't necessarily tied in every case. And I'm wondering if you can shed some light on why that happened, whether there's situations where people were voting for Warnock and Purdue, or if they were just voting for Warnock, or what was happening there. I think what we know so far is a few things, and that's that Kelly Loeffler is a deeply polarizing individual. Her attacks on Warnock's faith and his worldview based on his association with the Black church, as you know, he's a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a historic church that Martin Luther King Jr. also co-pastored, was taken quite personally by many Black Christians across Georgia and people who support the theological worldview of the Black church, which, you know, quite frankly, includes a lot of people outside of the Black church. And so people were really upset with her. They thought her attacks on uh, Warnock and many other Black Americans were, were racist and reminiscent of what they hated most about Trump. So there was a strong desire to make sure that she did not return to Washington. Warnock also, by sheer age, has deeper roots in Georgia than Ossoff. They both are from Georgia, but he's been on the ground working in Georgia far longer than Ossoff has. And so he has relationships that made it a bit easier for some voters to turn to him and choose him when given the opportunity to vote. The results that we've seen so far What do you think they say about President Trump right now and his influence during these last few weeks of his presidency? There are places where President Trump's power and influence are still significant. Whether Georgia is one or not, it's not clear and does not appear to be the case based on the results of the 2020 election and this Senate runoff race. And that's in part because of the demographics. I think what President Trump may have done often is overstated his influence. And that's not surprising because based on his tweets and many of the comments he shares during his speeches, President Trump seems to give the impression that he does not understand America as deeply as you would think someone who is presiding over the country does. One example of that is he often talks about suburbs as these, quite frankly, lily white communities with lots of stay at home moms that are rooted in traditional values and hold conservative politics. We know from data that many suburbs are actually majority minority and they are more diverse socioeconomically than, you know, the image of a stay at home mom and a father who's an executive would suggest. And so these demographics, these suburbs around Atlanta and Savannah and Columbus and some of the other metropolitan areas in Georgia favor the Democratic Party. And that is one of the reasons why the president's desire to make kings in these areas It's just coming back void. So what do you think are the lessons that can be taken away for Democrats from this win in Georgia in in terms of what could happen in the future and what could happen in other states? 
Based on my conversations with Democrats so far, uh, one of the main takeaways is that if you mobilize voters, uh, they will turn out. They will support you and uh, show up in ways that maybe they didn't even in a general election. People really do like to know that their vote matters. And if they can connect with those hoping to fill offices, they will have more confidence in their ability to actually have influence in Washington or in state capitals. Eugene Scott writes about politics for The Fix. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. What's happening in Georgia and in Washington, D.C. are very fast-moving stories. To stay up to date on everything that's going on, go to WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.